Welcome to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We're excited you've joined us as we hear what God has to say to us through Scripture and this message from Pastor Paul. Have you ever noticed when you're driving along, say on US 74 through Monroe, and a cop pulls up behind you behind a red light, you get a little nervous. And you start to think, okay, is my tag up to date? Has my stolen merchandise hidden away well? And you surely don't want to peel away when the light turns green. Why do we do that? Because we think the police are just waiting for us to mess up so they can get us. Well, they're not. And we have some wonderful officers of the city of Monroe as a part of our congregation. Unfortunately for many of us, this image of someone waiting for us to mess up so they can get us is exactly what we feel when we talk about God. When it comes to how we view God, a lot of times we view God as a spiritual cop rather than the Savior He wants to be. We might think that God is waiting for us to mess up so He can make note of it, kind of like a sin citation. The problem with this view of God is that we would want to distance ourselves from Him. Yet God, as revealed in Jesus Christ, is totally different than the God who's a spiritual cop. In this four-part series of what Jesus came to do, we're looking at events in the life of Jesus as people encounter Him and, and what it teaches and what happens in many of these gospel stories, the people would even approach Jesus. There might be somebody who makes their way through a crowd to see Him or touch Him. On one occasion, there was a group of friends who lowered a fifth friend from a rooftop down into the presence of Jesus. Contrary to those stories, however, the event we read of today is a woman who is literally thrust into Jesus' presence, fourth. I bet there are some today who can identify with that. Some of you are forced to watch this service. If you're forced by a spouse, then you feel forced. Some of you young people, your parents force you to watch or listen. So Taylor Ann Jordan, there will be a quiz afterwards. So if you feel forced to be here, you probably have a head start on what this woman might have experienced. But as always with Scripture... There is something incredible for us to learn. Our story is found in the Gospel of John in the 8th chapter. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around Him, and He sat down to teach them. Now, the teachers of the law, that's the scribes and the Pharisees, brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. So here's Jesus teaching at the temple. A crowd is gathered, and up walks religious leaders and drop off this woman in front of Jesus because she was caught in the act of adultery. Now, if you're not aware of the leaders in Jesus' day, especially regarding the Pharisees, they were totally wrapped up in keeping every letter of the law. They were into looking good from the outside. And when there is tension a lot of times in the Bible stories between Jesus and a group, it's not the public at large. As notorious of sinners as they are, when Jesus is angry, it's directed mostly at the religious elite. They were so concerned with the external. Jesus, so concerned with the internal. 
As you can imagine, these religious leaders didn't care much about who Jesus was, or at least claimed to be, and what he taught. And so they drop off this woman who was caught in the, in the act of adultery. They drop off right in front of Jesus for a reason that we'll see in a moment, the real reason. And you know, every time I read this story, I have to pause and wonder, 2,000 years ago, was adultery all that much different then? What I mean is, when it comes to adultery, basically there's got to be two people, right? Well, she's there by herself. Where's the guy in the story? Why wasn't he there? The Old Testament law commands that both parties be condemned. Where was he? The answer, it doesn't really matter because the religious leaders weren't concerned with all aspects of the law. Not justice in this case. If they were concerned about justice, then they both would have been there, the man and the woman. That was the law. But they weren't concerned about that at all. In fact, this woman was meaningless. She was a pawn, an object, a bait for a much larger fish. They bring her in front of this crowd as Jesus is teaching. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. There it is. The real reason for this event, the word trap. If Jesus says no, he loses. If he says yes, he loses. That's the trap. The law of Moses said stone her. If Jesus says no, he violates the Mosaic law. And they would have said, well, if he goes against Moses, he's not from God. So if he says no, he loses. And if he says yes, he violates Roman law. Because Jews under Roman control don't have the authority to mete out corporal punishment. Besides, Maybe even more importantly, he would have been seen as just another religious leader focused on keeping every letter of the law, just the external. So either way, if Jesus says yes to the stoning, he loses. If he says no to the stoning, he loses. And I can imagine these scribes and Pharisees at this very moment high-fiving each other, thinking, man, we got him. We've got him. They're smug. They're prideful. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. We don't know why. He just stooped down and and began to write in the sand. Maybe it was a nonverbal way to slow down the fevered pitch of the mob. Maybe he was trying to diffuse their anger and disappointment. We don't even know what he wrote. Now, there's some that have speculated, well, I bet he wrote the sins of each one there around the crowd as he looked around and maybe even drew arrows to those that it related to. We don't know. Maybe he just wrote, Jesus was here, 426, 31. I mean, like the real 31, not 1931. (laughs) Obviously, we're left to wonder what he wrote. But what he said was very clear. Verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Wow. 
I don't think the Pharisees and the scribes counted on the fact that Jesus would put people before, that he would put them ahead of religious practices. It would have been so easy to Jesus, for Jesus to assume the role of judge in front of this woman, but he refuses to. The religious leaders, you see, hadn't gotten their, their arms and minds wrapped around what Jesus was there to do. And his command was to love one another, not law one another. And his brilliant response broke the dilemma. Yet at the same time, Jesus upheld biblical morality because he didn't say that what she did was right. Even 2,000 years later, we know right now there's not a person watching or listening without sin in their life. If I were to say, okay, you can keep watching if you don't have sin in your life. But if you have sin in your life, if you have ever sinned, you have to leave this broadcast. I'd be the only one here. Just kidding. Verse 8. Again, Jesus stooped down and began to write on the ground. Now, part of me, knowing the character of God, thinks that, well, Jesus doesn't want to add to the shame of those around him. And it makes me think how very different I am than God. If that were me, oh, I would have been looking at every single one of them straight in the eye. And before anyone had even a chance to respond to anything that I've said or even think much about what I've said, I would have been going, okay, Sally, Jim, Paul, we're talking about sin here, and yours has been pretty unbelievable of late. Jesus doesn't do that. Maybe he stoops that second time because he's imagining in his mind what this woman was created to be and to do. Maybe he's looking at her thinking that she was created to enjoy life. She was created to have a right relationship with God and others. She was created to be loved. The same dream that he has for you. The result is verse 9. At this time, those who began going away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. What that means is that they were literally admitting to their sin. Verse 10, Jesus straightens up and he says, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Jesus addresses her as let me try to clarify, give some insight to that word. It's really a term of affection. It's the same word that Jesus uses to address his mother, affection. I'm sure it wasn't with affection in mind that she heard names being called of her through everyone in the whole community. I'm sure it wasn't with affection that she thought of herself at that very moment. No one, sir, she said, to the question, is there anyone left to condemn you? Jesus finishes it this way, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Again, Jesus steps into the role of Savior. The only one who could have thrown a stone based on being the only sinless one ever, never even picked up a stone. 
Jesus alone could pronounce her not guilty. Why? Because in just a little while following this story, Jesus is going to go to the cross and he's going to take with him all the wrongs that she'd ever done and nail them to the cross. And then he pronounces those final words, which I'll paraphrase as, go and sin no more. What's important to understand in the character of God is that Jesus accepts this woman without approving of the sin. He accepts this woman, but he doesn't approve of her sin. I love his focus. It's so future-oriented. He doesn't bring up the past. He doesn't bring up this act. What he says, in effect, is, Go and sin no more. You're forgiven. Now go act like it. Another way of sensing this verse is is if Jesus said, you did wrong, but I will pay for your sins because you matter to me. I want you. I will not give up on you. I value your life, but it can't end here. I wonder, as last week with the rich young ruler, what happened to her? Did she return to her old ways, her old life, her old habits? Or did her infidelity turn into devotion? Was her lust transformed to love? Out of her sin, did she have a sincere desire to follow the one who said, I also don't condemn you? We don't know. But what we do know is that this event reveals the character of God. So we ask the question, what does Jesus want to do for us? What if we were in a similar situation as this woman? I know of no one who wants to be totally exposed like that. But go to that ugly place in your life just for a moment. Go to that place where if what you know about yourself was somehow thrust upon a big screen and it would bring nothing but shame and guilt. Every time I go there, it's not a pretty place. Yeah, we're all sinners. So what can be done about it? What can be done about the sin? Well, I guess one, we try to suppress it, pretend that it doesn't exist. But that only leads to a hard heart and a distance of ourselves from God and others. Or you can think about that sin. You can think about that ugly place, that ugly place and focus on it so much that it becomes paralyzing. Or You can examine it and confess it. You see it. You own it. You know it's yours. There's no one else to blame. Then you confess it. You lay it at the feet of Jesus. Then I hope you can imagine with me Jesus taking that and hanging it on the cross with him. So let me ask that question again. What does Jesus want to do for you? Two things. First, he wants to replace your guilt with grace. Grace is this unconditional love with forgiveness that God gives to you that you don't deserve, you cannot earn. It's a totally free gift. It's undeserved favor. Grace is getting what you don't deserve It's about hearing God say to you, I want to come in and remove the guilt that's been overwhelming you so that you can experience my forgiveness. We have such a difficult time with this as humans. 
because it's not how we treat one another. This isn't how we live in society. You pay for it. But that's not the way God approaches it. Through His grace, He's already paid for it. The courtroom was a wooden cross. Jesus Christ suffered the debt Himself. When He hung on that cross, it was as if He said, Paul, you deserve to be here because of the sin in your life, but I'm going to die in your place because I love you and I don't want you to die eternally. I want you to have a relationship with me, so I'm going to pay for it so that when I look at you, I can say not guilty. That's grace. So God adopts us into his family, and all we have to say is, yes, I want to be a part. Can you imagine how big God's refrigerator must be to have the pictures of all of his children on it, and yet that's what brings him joy? The Apostle Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says, God's unchanging plan has always been to adopt us in his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. Don't you want to get to know a God like that? So the only thing left to do is to surrender your life to him. What do you have to lose? I say nothing. But you say, well, what do I have to lose? I'll lose my freedom if I commit to him. Doesn't that mean that I have to stop doing what I want to do? But see, that's looking at it all wrong. That's not what you lose. That's what you gain. You actually gain your freedom when you surrender to Jesus. You gain freedom from sin, freedom from shame, freedom from guilt, freedom from your past. It's not that you'll have to stop doing what you want to do. It's that you'll want to stop doing the things that don't lead to life. So how about it? Are you ready to know that there's more waiting for you? Then invite Him in. We hope you found this message to be encouraging. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and at bhprez.org for more information.